job, guys. Good job. Maddie is single, and I will be taking <clears throat> early screening applications for her. I'll never forget the first time my daughters dated. The people that took them out had to come and talk to me first and ask my permission. I'll never forget the first time Danny came and wanted to date, asked if she could date my daughter. And uh, I'm not sure he ever got over it, but uh, it was a fun time, and it pays off, so praise the Lord for that. Now, last week, <clears throat> I told you we're in the book of Proverbs this morning. <clears throat> we're going to come continue on down through here. I told you last week we, how we moved into the last section of Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11 has been a great practical chapter for us in so many ways. And probably uh, this last section is one of the greatest passages in all the Bible that really lays out what it takes to be um, a Christian and even to be a church uh, in the right way for the Lord today uh, in the days that we live in. And I talked about last week, and I built last week's sermon around several little key concepts. One of the key concepts that I, I even asked you to think about the rest of the day was the basis of which Christianity do you have? Do you have a convenient Christianity or do you have a sacrificial Christianity? Do you have a Christianity that, you know, it's there when you need it, but you're not there when it needs you? Or do you have a sacrificial Christianity that you realize that all that God has done for you, that he wants some things back from us? And we talked about that. I, I took you back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and I showed you the, uh, we, and we've been through this many times, the seven periods of church history. And I showed you how that, uh, uh, that uh, the law of human collapse and how it was at work in the first and second century of Christianity. I showed you that the church at Ephesus was the first church period. Paul talks about them in Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> but then it goes into Smyrna, and then it goes to the church of Pergamos, the third one. And the Bible says about Ephesus that we begin to see the first falling apart of Christianity. And they left their first love, the Bible says. And we see then it moved down to Pergamos, which brings us up to about 300 A.D. to around 500, the start of the Dark Ages. And I told you that the name Pergamos means much marriage. And it's a time when Christianity back then literally gets married to the world when the Bible says we're engaged to Christ. And I began to make the parallels to us today as a New Testament church uh, that in a New Testament Christianity that for the most part today, unfortunately, is again married to the world. I think one of the greatest revelations of history and the Bible is the great study of how God deals with Israel and how God deals with church, uh, churches. Uh, there's t uh, the Bible gives us in the book of Proverbs two landmarks. And when you don't get these landmarks down, when you don't get these landmarks down, then you get lost. And the Bible says we end up in the fields of the fatherless. Most of you don't know this story, but uh, when I was just a young guy, uh, and I probably was in, oh, uh, 10th or 12th grade, maybe a sophomore somewhere in there, freshman, I, I read a story um, about a, a B-24 bomber and its crew, and it had a story that had just come back to life, and it was a story of a plane uh, named The Lady Be Good. And, uh, and, I, and the irony of this, that, that uh, 72 years ago yesterday, 
was the anniversary of the Lady Be Good in 1943 on April the 4th. And the story was simply this. They left on a bombing mission over Italy. And they flew out of a, uh, I forget where they flew out of, but they flew out and, they, and the weather closed in and they couldn't permit the mission, so they kind of got scattered with bad weather. <clears throat> and then they flew back <clears throat> over the, to come back to their base. The Lady Be Good never showed up. She never came back. For 15 years, it was a mystery what happened to that plane. And then uh, around 1959, uh, an oil expedition that was British Petroleum in the Libyan desert was looking for oil samples, and they come across this B-24 that was lying in the middle of the desert. And when they looked at it, they marked it on a map as a reference, and they took down the tail number and the name on the plane, and sure enough, the name of that bomber was the Lady Be Good. Well, the Air Force got involved, and nobody could figure out how the Lady Be Good had disappeared for 15 years. And they began to bring search teams in, and it was, it was almost like they had disappeared. <clears throat> the plane was almost left un, undisturbed. It had bellied in, but it was completely intact. The coffee, after 15 years, the coffee in the thermos was still warm, warm and drinkable. The machine gun still fired. It was almost like that everybody just left the plane and disappeared in the thin air. It deepened the mystery. And they began a pattern of searches, and it was not long before they started to find little strips of parachutes, little articles of of somebody's clothing and a flight jacket here or this here, and they began to search in a circular pattern, and the first thing they found was one of the men who uh, uh, was still in his parachute that he bailed out and, and his chute didn't open. They moved out a little farther and they found arrow strips made out of parachute cloth indicating a direction that they were going. They moved out a little bit farther and it wasn't long before they found the pathetic little camp of about four or five of those crew members, their bones laying in the sand for 15 years, and there was all their personal articles, there was uh, a, a diary. And they began to reconstruct what happened. And it wasn't until some years later that they found the rest of the crew, but they had, a couple of them had the strength to go on when those crew members there did not have the strength and they died there. But the, the diary indicated that what had happened was is that they had went toward their bombing mission and then they had turned around because of the weather and they come back. But because of the clouds, because they couldn't see, the navigator, and by the way, his name was D.B. Hayes and he was from Lee Summit, Missouri. And the navigator missed a landmark. And when he missed the landmark, they continued to fly, and they actually flew right over their base of Naples in Italy and then flew on into the desert some three, 400 miles before they ran out of gas. They thought they were over water. In the diary, it says that they, because it was at night and they couldn't see, and so they bailed out expecting to hit the water, but they landed in the desert. The plane then just augered in after a period of time. It ran out of gas, and if they would have got to the plane, which only came down probably five or ten miles from where they came down, they'd have survived. They could have made it, but they didn't. And I looked at that lesson, and I followed it through history, and as a young kid, it just captivated me, uh, the story of the Lady Be Good. You can go online and Google the Lady Be Good. It'll tell you the whole story. There's a whole website devoted to it. Now, 
But I remember looking at that story and reading that story, and years later, I thought to myself, you know what got those guys killed? What got those guys killed is because one man missed a landmark. And when he missed that landmark, they thought they were going in the right direction when in actuality they were going completely in the wrong direction. And there's a lot of people, when you miss the two landmarks in the Bible, one in the nation of Israel, the other the church, you're going to head the wrong direction and you're going to wind up being killed spiritually. It's just that simple. And when you, when you understand that in the Old Testament, <coughs> Israel goes into captivity uh, of the world, married to the world, two times. I told you this Thursday night when we were answering this guy's question. The first time is 606 B.C. They come out of it 70 years later, and they go on and on and on. And then at the first coming of Christ, they get another opportunity to get the truth. They crucify him and reject him. And then so in 70 A.D., the second, com- second thing happens when they get taken into captivity the second time. And they've been in the captivity now uh, under the world, even though they're back in the land, they're far from God. And what is going to what is going to end this second captivity is going to be the second coming of Christ, which is going to happen at any time. And in the same way, the church gets married to the world two times. It's incredible. The first time is in Pergamos, as we're studying last week. They come out of that at the Reformation with Martin Luther. And then we go into the greatest period of time we know in history as the Philadelphian church age. But then again, around 1900, <clears throat> we see the church go into apostasy with the Laodicean church period. And again, it loses, it leaves its first love, the word of God. And yet the second one for the church will be ended by the rapture of the church. Quite a remarkable study in history and the Bible, unknown today to most God's people, but certainly nonetheless quite remarkable. But the thing we talked about during this Pergamos church period, <clears throat> I showed you that God had a man. God had a man. I showed it to you last week. How that God always has his remnant and they will always take their stand no matter how much the church goes into apostasy. And in the Pergamos church period, God had a man. In the period that we live in today, God is going to have some men. And I told you how that the job of any church, the job of any pastor is to take the men and the women that God gives him and God brings him and then to help them get to the goals in their life of being everything for God that God wants them to be. Book of Ephesians talks about by perfecting the saints, by the work of the ministry, for edifying the body of Christ. A favorite passage of mine was always back in Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22 says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, uh, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor reigned upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets. This is talking about Israel. In the midst thereof, like a roaring lion, ravaging the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have her uh, many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have, have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbath and I am profane among them. Now this is Israel. This is Israel right before they go into the first captivity. 
And then he goes on and he says, jumping down to verse 30, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. And all through this passage, you find the great study going on that this is the state of Israel in 606 B.C. But I must tell you, it's also the state of Christianity today in 2015. And just as God, when Israel was in its worst and had profaned everything that was good, had taken the holy things and made them the profane things, and the profane things and made them the holy things. Today, the church has done the same thing. We talked last week about Eve's client and a new men's ministry in their church, beer in the Bible. How, how contradictive that is to everything. But that's where it's at today. And just as in 606, God was looking for a man, was looking for a woman that would stand up, make up the gap, stand in the gap, make up the hedge. And that gap and that hedge is a, a breach in the wall. He's looking for a man or a woman that will fill the void of truth in Israel that keep the nation from being destroyed by the judgment of God. And in our time, it's the same thing. Nothing has really changed. We drive cars, they drove chariots. They wore robes, we wear clothes. Nothing other than that has really changed. God is still looking for a man or a woman today that will fill the void of truth. And the question is, will you be that man or will you be that woman? It's the only question that God's people today really need to answer. It's not about, do you love God? It's not about, do you read your Bible? It's not about, do you love people? It's not about how often you go to church. It's about, will you settle in your heart that you're going to be that man or be that woman that God is looking for? We seek many things from God in our lives. Yes, we do. Every time we have a need, every time we have a struggle, every time we have something go south in our life, we seek God on it. But you know, you know, all the things that we seek from God, and if you would add them up in your life, and how many times we've come to God and we said, oh God, I need this, and help me with this, and help me with this. There's only one thing God ever sought from any of us. Only one thing. There's only one thing that God ever looked at man and desired from man after that man was saved, and that is that man would take a stand for him and make up the hedge in the gap. That's all God ever asked for us. Now, last week we knew the man, his name by Antipas. And we know now that his name means against everything. And we built last week's message around one key word that will always separate the Anipuses in life from the rest of Christianity. It's the word desire. A desire for the things of God to become in our lives the fulfillment of God's salvation to us. I said it last week. It's either a convenient Christianity or a sacrificial Christianity. It's either a Christianity that's built on your convenience when you'll give God whatever's left in your life or it's a sacrificial Christianity that you put yourself to the side and give God the very best of what you have. Now today, we want to again read our passage that we'll begin to look at, and we'll see one or two more principles out of here. We won't finish this up today again. I, I want to take the time to give you everything out of here, but I want you to see, as I said last week, I have some goals for you. 
Maybe you don't have any goals for yourself, but as a pastor, I told you last week, a pastor with a church needs to have goals for his church and for his people. Now, I want to read Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verse 23 here, and we'll pick it up in 23, and we'll read verse 24. And here's what it says. Last week's verse and this week's verse. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Now, Father, thank you for today, and thank you for the good folks that have come out today. And Lord, um, I know today is Easter, and people around the world are celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Lord, I, I, I'd be less than honest if I, I, I didn't say that, uh, Lord, I have somewhat of a problem with that. I think Christianity has come to the place where it's, it's traditionalized everything uh, that is so real to you. Uh, setting aside one day to, uh, to mark the resurrection, when that day ought to be the number one day of everything in our lives, of every day of the year, the day that Christ came out of that tomb and gave us the newness of life. Not just one day a year, not just the fact that we bring in a, go out and get nice clothes and, and bring flowers and palm trees and all that stuff, but every day of our life we should look to the risen Savior. Because without that day of coming out of that tomb, Father, we'd be lost and in our sins. And it's not something that we just set aside once a day and make a pilgrimage to our favorite church to examine it and to have a good time and give ourselves a good conscience and a good warm feeling. But it's a time that every day of our lives we need to look inside and thank God for the day that he came down and died on that cross, died on that cross and went into that tomb and on the third day resurrected and he gave us the newness of life. Thank you, Father, for that. And may because of that we may get more out of this today. May it spur us. What good does it do, Lord, to go to church on Easter and put all of the little particulars in the right place and then to forget about it tomorrow and go right back to the way we were? Let this message change us today. Let us see that our Christianity needs to be a sacrificial one, not a convenient one. And we'll thank and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, Now, last week I told you that the job of this church and the job of each of you as a Christian is simply one simple task, and that is one of duplication, one of reproducing yourself in others. For me as a pastor, I have one job, really, fundamentally. My job is to take what God has put in my life and then reproduce it in you. And uh, if a pastor is dull and boring in what he does with the Bible, if he doesn't love the Bible, if he's not excited about Christianity, his people will not be either. Everything rises and falls on leadership. A church will only be as good as the pastor is, and his desires, good or bad, will become their desires because that's the way it works. I I talked about parents to their children. Uh, We have a very young church in the sense of a lot of young couples with a lot of kids running around here and more adding every week. In fact, don't see Courtney here this morning. Huh? She's in with the kids. Well, that's a good place to be when your due date is tomorrow, in with the kids. I have my rubber gloves right here in my back pocket just in case. Phil's got the water boiling back there. I'm proactive. (laughs) Parents to their kids. You know, I've heard parents all the time say, well, my kids just cause all kinds of problems in the home. And that's not true. Kids don't cause problems in the home. Kids just reveal the problems that are already in the home. 
And we have to reproduce ourselves as parents in our kids. It's a simple thing. It's just the way it works. And then the third thing is, is uh, Christians to other people. You know, uh, once you have your family online and now you're ready to take on uh, other people. Building the, the, the principles that are in your life and the goals that are in your life in the life of somebody else. And today we'll see exactly how to do that. And we'll see the principles that are involved in understanding how to do that. The process of a biblical spiritual growth process. And I want you to look at verse 24. It's a great verse with a great set of principles. And, you know, like I said, I'm not in a hurry to get through this because I want to develop all of these things. But verse 24 says this. There is that scattereth and yet increases, and there is that withholdeth more than is meet, uh, but tendeth to poverty. Now, there are some great principles here, and I want to, as I said, take some time and develop them. First of all, look at the first part of verse 24. There is that scattereth and yet increases. Now, what he's saying there, that he's saying that we scatter something, we lose it, we, we, Ecclesiastes says there's a time to cast away. So we're casting something away, we're scattering it, we're losing it, but yet the Bible says we still an increase by it. In the Bible, one of the greatest principles found anywhere is the teaching simply this. If you want to keep it, you got to give it away. That's one of the greatest fundamental principles anywhere in the Bible. And the greatest example I know about that is the story of Moses. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3. And, uh, you know, Moses uh, was born back there when uh, Israel was under the iron heel of, of Egypt. And Pharaoh had made a decree because he wants to keep the population of male Jews to a minimum because he doesn't want them growing up and overtaking his empire. So he puts out a decree that they kill all the male children, that they're not allowed to live. Well, Moses' mother has a male child. And the Bible says that they, they, they hid him for about three months, but then it was very obvious to the neighbors that there was a male child there. And so Moses' mother is in a dilemma. She wanted to do, she wanted to do uh, something to protect her child. She believed in God. She loved the Lord. She believed that the God uh, was her deliverer. So you know what she did? She took that little baby and she put a little basket together and she put him in that basket, and then she took him down because she knew if she kept him, she was going to lose him. So she said in her heart, Lord, this is the baby that you gave me. I can't keep him because if I do, I'm going to lose him. So I'm going to give him to you. And she took him down to that river, the Nile, and she put him down there in that little river, in that little basket, and covered him up. And then she goes back in the corner someplace of the woods, and she just watches to make sure nothing happens to her child. Tremendous story. Now, if you want to work with people, if you want to be a great counselor, this is one of the greatest studies you want to get down. Moses is your first basket case in the Bible that is in denial. (laughs) (laughs) Write that down now. That's important stuff. You like that, didn't you, Mama? Come over and give me a hug. I just the sweetest thing in the world. I love you. So anyway, she takes that little basket. She puts it down in there. She stands over here. Lo and behold, here comes Pharaoh's daughter down. She's coming down to take her morning bath. 
That's the way they say it when you're up in the upper crust of things, you know. They tell me down to get her morning bath. And she's down there, and she's washing in there. She hears this little child crying. And she goes over there and looks into this little basket, and there's this little baby. She knows it's a Hebrew baby. But she wants to have compassion on it. She doesn't agree with everything her dad's doing, so, but she's the, she's the king's daughter. She can do whatever she wants to do. So she takes that little baby, and she takes it into the palace there in Egypt, and she's going to have that child for her own. So she says to one of her servants, it's a Hebrew child. I want you to call a Hebrew woman to come and raise this child for me, even though I'm going to take this child to be my own. So you know what happens. They go over there, and, and, and I'm sure that Moses' mother is fretting over there. She sees her going. She says, oh, man, of all the people that get this, she's back at her home, walking up and down, fretting all this thing, and just sweating bullets, you know. Oh, man, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Man, she took her in there. She's going to take her in and give her to her father, and they're going to kill that. And the phone rings. <laughs> and she picks up the phone, and guess who it is? It's the official magistrate for Pharaoh's daughter who says, we need you to come and be a, be a mother, a surrogate mother to this baby that the princess found. And you know what happens? Because she was willing to give that baby to God and give it away, God orchestrated the circumstances and gave the baby back. He needed to be raised in the Egyptian environment because of what God was going to do with him. He needed to learn the fine-tunings and the understandings of the inside of his own people plus the inside of Israel. And God used the events of his mother who trusted God and gave that baby away, and then God gave the baby right back. And it sets up one of the greatest principles. If you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. Incredible. Incredible. The, another great example is the example of, of Hannah. In first second, uh, in first uh, uh, first Samuel chapter one, two, and three, Hannah is a, another great example of that, and she wanted a boy. She wanted a child. She's barren, and so she she asked the Lord and prayed. And oh, and 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 first Samuel chapter one and two. I'm telling you, moms, if you want a great prayer in the Bible for your children and you want to dedicate them to the Lord, and you want them to be used to God, it's Hannah that you want to go to. God answered that prayer, and God gave her a little boy, and boy, she took that little boy, and she brought him up so far, and then she fixed him a little coat. She fixed him a little hat, like the one Paul has over here, and she got all those things, and she took him down to Samuel. And the Bible says that she says, God gave him to me. God gave me the desire of my heart when I was barren, and because gave him to me, Great word. She says, I'm going to lend him back to the Lord. And she took him down and gave him to Samuel or Eli. And Eli brought him up and trained him in the ministry and gave him everything that she needed. And what did God get out of it? God got the greatest prophet and one of the greatest judges that Israel ever saw. And you know what? If she would have kept him to herself, just as Moses' mother would have kept Moses to herself, they'd have lost him. It never would have happened. But you see, she had a desire. And her desire was to reproduce herself into Samuel. And the clear teaching is whatever, whatever, you, whatever you give God, I don't care what it is. Whatever you give God and whatever you give up in your life, 
Whatever you put it to God and say, here it is, will always come back better than when you gave it to him. You know what's true of life? Matthew chapter 10, verse 39 says, oh, we put so much on life. We want to live. Everything about life is living. Live for this. Live for that. We got to do this. Have fun. We have a bucket list. The things that we want to do for ourselves before we die. I have never seen a bucket list of a child of God of what I want to do for God before I die. It's all about what I want to do. Yet the Bible says, he that loses his life shall find it. You'll never be or do anything for God until you give up the control of your life. And when you do, I'm going to tell you something, your life will be better. Just look at your, some of your lives today. You know, some of you, and I look at you, and we're in the ministry together, and I wouldn't trade you for the world, but let's go back a couple of times back. Some of you struggled with that. You know that? Amen. Probably almost everybody here at some point, you struggle with a decision to give your life to God or to keep it to yourself. You had to take an accounting. Look at what I have. Look at what I might have to give up. Look at what I might get. Every man and woman in this room who is where you're supposed to be with God or trying to be, you came to that conclusion. And you had to decide. Sometimes it was about going to this church where you really were going to be accountable to the Word of God or going to Dead Street Baptist Church over here where you could do whatever you want to do. But you had to make a choice. And you know what? You are living testimony today that your life is better after you made that choice. It's true of life. You gave up your life. You lost your life to the world and you found it in Christ and the things that he wants to do for you. It's true of our kids and our children and our families. Giving up your children to the Lord during the, doing the work of reproducing and duplicating yourself and your children will always bring them back better than when you gave them up. It's simply that clear. I mean, it's just simple. Now, follow me here. You, you give up your life to God then you give up your family to God. Now you have those two things working for you. Now God takes them and then gives them back to you better than when you gave them up to him. And it's the same thing with the Bible. And this is where our verse 24 comes in today, scattering the word of God. You have to give up that Bible. You have to give it away to others. And when you do, it comes back on you better than when you ever gave it up. And the mark of a sacrificial Christianity will always be simply giving to others. I love this church. I love the people in this church. But the thing I love about most of you or all of you, because it doesn't, matter, it doesn't seem to matter where you're at on what spiritual level, it really doesn't. I, I stand back and watch it. It doesn't seem to really matter uh, where, where you're at. I've seen some of you that probably not where you need to be with God, and you know that, but you still have this endearing quality. You're never too busy to help somebody else with something that they need. You're always there for somebody. And it's, a, it's the same way with the Bible. You have to give that book away to others. And the key to reproducing yourself and, and transferring what you have to somebody else is simply that giving of the Word of God and yourself to others. And when you do, that book comes back to you better than it does when you had it and you kept it to yourself or you didn't do anything with it. It's just that simple. Yeah, I look at the people that go down there to Wichita. 
you know what? I know we go down there for you and you're up here today. We go down there because we love you and you want to learn the Bible. And I know it helps you. But I see the growth in my people because they're willing to make that sacrifice. There's nothing that will grow you up and commit you and dial you in that when you start taking what God has given you and scattering it out. This thing, I'm telling you right now, this thing in Lincoln, I don't have, I can't even stay on top of it. It's happening so fast. I never would have dreamed that, what, four years ago when we were having those Bible studies on the conference lines up there and I was teaching them the Bible through a phone, had no idea that would explode like it has right now. It, it simply comes back to what I've always told you. I don't care how bad the world is. I don't care how dark Christianity is. There are people out there who still want to know the truth. And when you do what's right in your life and they have a desire in their life, the Holy Spirit of God puts the two of you together and it gets done. It's that simple. And it comes back better on you. It comes back better on you. We see it in restart. We see it at turnaround. We see it in everything we do. I see it when you start to disciple somebody. This is why I push you and prod you to get involved, to do something, because you just can't keep hoarding what God gives you. You got to scatter it, because when you scatter it, it'll come back and it'll increase in your life. That's one of the greatest single principles in the Bible. It really is. And in the Bible, there are two great examples of this. Last week, I gave you just a brief uh, rendition of Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 1 uh, through 9, where it says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat and stood, uh, the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Now, that's what you and I are to do. God saved you to sow. God saved you to sow. God saved you to take the word of God that he puts in your heart and then sow out the seed. Scatter it. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came up and devoured them. And some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. That's one of the greatest stories in the Bible that shows you when you sow the word of God. You know, he goes out there and some of the seed falls by the wayside. And nothing happens to it. That's a picture of the people who are careless in their life. They don't really care. They're party, party, party. They don't really care about anything spiritual. So when you sow the seed, goes by the wayside. Some of that seed that he sowed fell on stony places. That's a man's heart. All these are pictures of a man's heart. And a heart is hardened. There's no depth of anything for anything to grow because of the hardness of their heart. Some fell among thorns, the Bible says. And the thorns sprung up and choked them. That's the people that many times you associate with that when you start to do what's right, they will choke it off in you because they don't want you to do what's right. Ah, but then some fell on the good ground. Some fell on the good ground and when it gets scattered, it increases. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. But that's what it does. You scatter it to the wind, the Holy Spirit of God. 
and then the increase. And now the next one's found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. This is a great one. One through six, here's what he says here. He says, cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the cloud shall not reap. As thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed. In the evening withhold not thine hand. For thou knowest not whether thou, whether shall prosper either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Now, the first thing he says here, and I just want to give you a quick rendition of this. First thing he says there is cast thy bread upon the water. In the Bible, water is likened to uh, large bodies of water, likened to people. And it's a thing where we talk about the sea of humanity. And it's a picture of casting the bread, type of the word of God, upon the waters. My greatest example of this, I always love to do this with my little grandkids. <clears throat> when we go back to Ohio, <clears throat> there's a couple of parks down there, got a lot of ducks. I'll go buy four or five loaves of bread, bust it all up, <clears throat> and go feed the ducks. <clears throat> and <clears throat> they got this big water here, the ducks are half-lack, half out there, you know, <clears throat> doing everything. <clears throat> I love, <clears throat> I, I love, <clears throat> I love getting a big handfuls of bread and throwing it up in the air, hitting that water, and watch 120 ducks commit suicide running into each other in the middle of that thing. <laughs> That's what the Bible's talking about. And you know what? <clears throat> I'm going to tell you something. There's people in this world today that are just as hungry for the bread of the Word of God as those ducks are for the bread that you put on the water. But you know why they never get it? Nobody goes to scatter it. Nobody goes to put it out. Cast thy bread upon the water. And then it says, and thou shalt find it after many days. Now, there's two aspects of that. The first aspect is the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to come back for you at the judgment seat of Christ because you scattered the water. The second aspect... And that is, is that it may take four or five years for you to see the results of that. Oh, John Wesley one time was a circuit riding preacher, and he was driving, riding his horse from place to place preaching the Word of God. <clears throat> one night about two in the morning, he was going from one place to the other, and a highwayman come up and put a blunderbuss on him, and, and oh, John, uh, he, stopped, he stopped there, and, and the guy said, give me everything you got, and he gave him everything he had, which was about four or five shillings, and he says, uh, on your way. And as he was starting to drive away, uh, old John Wesley stood around, and he says, young man, wait a minute. And that guy turns around, puts the gun on him, and he says, what? And he says, young man, someday you may tire of the life that you're now living. And when you do, I want you to remember the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Put the gun down and went on his way. Four years later, he was preaching in a church someplace in another town. And at the end of the service, four years later, that man came up, restored the money. He says, Mr. Wesley, he says, here's the money I took from you. I'm the guy that robbed you. He says, I'm sorry. He says, here's everything I took from you. He says, I've been looking for you for three years. He says, a year after I, that night, I got saved. And he said, I wanted to find you. He said, the thing that just wore me out was what you told me was the blood of Jesus Christ. God's son cleanses us from all sin. You betcha. Scattering it. Putting it out. Putting it out. Putting it out. Find it after many days. Look at verse 2. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. 
thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Now, there's a, there's a good principle. He says, uh, give a portion to seven uh, and, all, and, and then to eight. In other words, we know in the Bible that seven is the number of perfection. What he's saying here, don't only do what, what the, what's required, but go above and beyond. Go beyond what's expected. He says, give a portion to seven and also to eight. Why? But I know it's not what evil may be upon the earth. He says, you don't always know what you're up against out there when you're scattering. So give it everything you got and then give it some more. What he's saying? Look at verse 3. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in a place where the tree falleth, there shall it be. You know what he's saying? He's saying just as sure when the clouds get filled up with water, they're going to rain and the rain's going to come down. He says just as surely when a tree, when a tree. In the Bible, people are likened to trees. In the Bible, it says trees are likened to people. He says when a tree falls to the south or falls to the north. That's a picture of a man going to hell or going to heaven. But whatever way he goes, that's where he stays and God's judgment is sure. So that's why you scatter the word of God and put it out. Look at verse 4. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that guard, uh, regardeth the cloud shall not reap. Now that's being afraid of the world around you, being afraid of your friends or your family or the people in your world that have a convenient Christianity when you want to have a sacrificial Christianity. That's people who will try to dial you down and not make you so on fire for the Lord because they're not and you're showing them up I had a young guy one time years ago one of the smartest kids I ever met in my life he got really on fire for the Lord and loved the Lord but his mom and dad were just about as far out in left field as you could ever be they were nice people but they weren't going to do anything for God and they were always giving him problems they were always saying to him are you going to church again tonight well, what are you going here tonight? And I understand there has to be a balance between your family, but he did too. But it wasn't that. It was the fact that every time he went to church and they didn't, the Holy Spirit of God nailed them. And the more he got involved and the less they were involved, the Holy Spirit of God nailed them. This kid was a sharp kid. And I, I never forget, he told me this one night and I said, man, that was really good, pal. That was a good answer. But his mom and dad were giving him a thing again because he was going someplace, uh, do something with the church and, and uh, they didn't like it. And his dad said to him, he says, let me ask you something, son. Why do you got to spend half your life at that church with all the respect in the world, with a kind voice? He said back to his dad and his mom, you know what, mom and dad? I have to spend all that time there because you two won't pick up the load and do what you need to do. So because you won't pick up the load and do your part, I have to do my part plus your part. That's why I'm going to church tonight. Tonight, I'm just doing it for your part. You talk about ending the conversation. That was incredible that a young man had the insight to be able to say that, be able to do that, but it was true. He says in verse 5 and 6, as thou knowest not what is in the way of the spirit, nor how the bone do grow in the womb of her that is a child, even though thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. You see, when we put the word of God out, we don't always know what God's doing. Just like I can't explain how bones grow in a womb or how God does this or how God does that. You know what? I can't explain what God is doing. I look at a circumstance and I see it as I see it, but I don't see it the way God sees it. 
And because I don't see it the way God sees it, I got to give it my extra. I got to make sure that I'm doing everything I need to do. I got to go above that because I may be missing something. And I don't want anything that God, I can't speak for you, but I don't want anything that God's doing not to make it because I don't do my part. So you in the morning, you sow thy seed. In the evening, you withhold it not. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper either this or that, whether they both shall be alike. You don't know what God's doing, so you just put it out. You do know this, Isaiah 55, 11, God's word never returns void. You put it out, he'll use it. You put it out, he'll use it. Now, verse 24 says, there is that scattereth and yet increase. Now, in Bible Christianity, the idea of giving of something away to God and getting an increase. That is the idea of an investment of our lives, giving your life away to the Lord. You know, our system of capitalism is built on the same thing. You have a system where you have to spend money to make money, a competitive system that, uh, that people can make money, make a profit, a return on their investment. And Christianity is the same way. You want to grow spiritually without making the investment of the people in the Word of God? You can't do it. You have to give what you have out to others. You have to scatter it, and then the increase comes. And just as we saw a couple of weeks ago, sin has wages. The wages of sin is death. It does. But Christianity and doing what's right has a payday too. This year, this year will be our 12th year as a church. And I told you last year, you know, we, we get everybody together. We run about 250 people. But 12 years ago, we started with about 14 people. And when you look around you today and you see what we've got today and the ministry that God's given us and the people that have gotten saved and all the things that God's doing, I can simply tell you this. It happened simply because there's people in this room today that were willing to give up of themselves and make the investment in other people and duplicate what they had in somebody else and it kept on going and kept on going and that's what builds a church. I look across here and see some of you guys and some of you gals that are invaluable to me in the ministry. You do incredible things. But you know what I also see? I see one or two gals, three or four or five gals out here that took eight or nine of you, 10 or 12 of you, and invested everything they got in you and made you what you are today because they duplicated into you. What somebody duplicated into them? You know, it's, it's, it's a simple concept. It's true in life. If you want to be in good shape, you have to make an investment in yourself. You know, you have to eat right. Put the Twinkies down. You don't know it, but we got a camera out there of everything that you guys take off that table when we're making notes. Now, some of you take those cream pies and stick them in your purse, stick them in your pockets. Some of you guys have brought cargo pants back into style simply because you can get more in the pockets of them. But you invest in yourself. You start eating right four or five days a week. You work out, you exercise. You take time to invest in a program that will make you fitter, stronger physically, make you better. But you have to be willing to make that investment. I always love these commercials. Get fat burner pills. Guy squashing a grapefruit. You don't like grapefruit? I don't like it either. Get you fat burner pills. You can eat all you want, do all you want, never exercise, eat the fat burner pills, and you'll lose weight. That's ludicrous. 
The guy knows he'll get away with it because you'll die of heart attack and overweight before you figure it out. There's no fat burner pills. There's no magical formula to being in shape. It takes a desire on your part to say, you know what? I want to change what I'm doing, and I'm going to change the way I'm eating. Gymnasiums, fitness clubs, they stay in business because thousands of people join and never go. I see it up where I go. You get these old geezers up there, you know, that are 60 years old. And I'll tell them. They got all these machines. They'll sit on the machines and they'll talk back and forth. And I say, I say, you know what? You obviously did not buy a membership here for a workout. What do you mean? You got a camping permit. Because all you do is sit on the machines. I need the machine. You know what? Thank you for keeping it warm. Not necessary. But I need the machine. Uh, it, it's, you see it wherever you go. They make millions of dollars because people get the, they get the idea. Oh, I'm going to a gym. You ought to see the place day after New Year's. <laughs> Packed to the walls. Just wait three or four days. Gone. <laughs> Where are they at? Oh, they're over at Quigley's Donuts over here someplace. You know, in your spiritual body, it's the same way. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 says, Strong meat, doctrine, belong to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of you, scattering and putting it out, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Exercising your spiritual body. And in Christianity, you can see the difference in, in any church. Any church. Those who make good investments and those who don't. You see it in kids, you see it in our lives, you see it in families, you see it in churches. There is that scattereth and increases. Then he says this, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but attendeth to poverty. Now in the Bible, uh, there's a great story that illustrates this, and you're all familiar with the story. It's a story about when the Lord went back to heaven and he, he gives some pounds to some people. It's found over there in Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through uh, 26. And you know the story. He gives one guy 10 pounds. Or excuse me, he gives every man a pound. Here, here's your pound, 10 guys. Here's your pound, here's your pound, here's your pound. Then the Bible says that he goes back to heaven. And then he comes back at a point at a time and he says, I want to see now what you did what I gave you. One guy says, Lord, I took your pound you gave me, and boy, I made some good investments. I got you 10 pounds. Somebody says, Lord, I took the one you gave me, and I got you five pounds. The other guy says, well, Lord, I took the pound you gave me, and I just gave it and saved it and put it away, and I didn't get anything done with it, but I got the one pound you gave me. Now, that's a story that illustrates a man making an investment in what God gives him, exactly what it says. And when he comes down through there, he says, he says, verse 23, he says that wherefore thou gavest not thou my money into the bank. He says, how come you didn't put it into a bank? How come you didn't put it where you could get usury? That's interest. Why did you just keep what I gave you and do absolutely nothing with it? And yet there's a lot of God's people that take everything that God gives them, everything that God bestows upon them through salvation, and they just keep it. They never do a thing with it. And it's an incredible study. Incredible to study. Look at verse 15. If you're there, if not, I'll just read it. 
He comes down through there and he says, the last part of that verse, um, excuse me, verse 23. He says, he says, wherefore thou gavest not money, my money to the bank, that I uh, that uh, you make use uh, that, that when I my coming I might have required my own with usury. He says I'll get it back. I'll get it back with 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 interest. Interest in it. That's what he's saying. And he comes down through there and he says in that verse he says that I might know how much every man hath gained by trading. Now, I've told you a million times about life. He says it. He says I I wanted to see how much each man might get and gain by trading. Now, I've told you a thousand times one of the greatest principles of life is life is a trade-off. If you want to have a relationship with God and know the Bible, you've got to trade off something for that. If you want a relationship with God, you've got to trade the world. How many times I've seen a, a young gal lose everything at probably the judgment seat of Christ because she traded the guy that God had for her for Bozo the Clown. And she traded, or he traded, and they make a mess out of their life. You'll trade in life one thing for another. The concept of making good or bad choices. Making good, smart investments. But we trade away many times our millennial inheritance for the things of the Lord. And then verse 24 says, There is that withholdeth more than is meat. Now you see that? Here's another angle on that verse. This is a great principle. He says, there is that withholdeth more than is meat. You've got to hold some things back in the Bible. You don't scatter it all. He says, that is meat. There's things that you need from the Word of God that you keep for yourself to help you meet the needs that you've got to have. There are promises. There are truths. There are principles. There are verses that you need. They're for you. God gave them to you. They're meat for your needs. You don't scatter them out. You don't take the Bible and just get everything out. you got to have stuff for yourself that gets you through. So You don't give it all out. You have to keep some of it, that book, just for yourself. You withhold some of it. But when you keep it all or don't even get it at all, it leads to poverty. It is true physically. Those who won't invest what they have in time will run out of money. I mean, uh, you got a retirement and you got some money uh, in your retirement, so you invest it and you live off the investment of getting the interest, never touch the capital. If you don't do that, you can live off your money, but you're going to run out sooner or later. It's not smart. It's smart to make good investments. And in your spiritual life, if you don't put out what you get biblically, scatter it. If you don't get it out and get an interest on it, get an income coming back on it spiritually, and let me tell you something. Boy, I'll tell you what, every week you get a lot here. We break the bank, man. I mean, like spiritually winning the lottery every week. I mean, I give you about, uh, you know, as much as I can and give you the word of God. But I give it to you much, as much as you can handle. But the Bible also says in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much is required. You got to do something with it when you get it. And in a spiritual sense, you'll wind up in poverty, spiritual bankruptcy. Hey, I've seen men and met people that, you know, that, that they have just absolutely, uh, I mean, they are so spiritually worthless and spiritual broke that they couldn't buy a corn dog spiritually. I mean, they are absolutely have not two spiritual nickels to rub together. They don't know the first thing about anything. I've seen saved, born-again Christians who just totally broke spiritually. 
I've seen families like that. Generation after generation after generation, nobody picks up anything from God. And one of the greatest illustrations of our working with homeless people, why I like to do it, always keeps it fresh in my mind, is because a lot of God's people are in the same boat. I mean, spiritually speaking. I mean, we see some really bad ones, people who live in a cardboard shack or live under a railroad bridge 10, 12, 15 years, waiting, begging for a food truck to come by. Never get a bath, no hygiene, ragged clothes, always getting whatever handouts, only when some good-natured person comes along and gives them something. They don't have one solid quality of life and anything that they do that they can call their own. And you know what? When you talk to them, you can see in a glance why they're where they're at because they all made the choices that put them in that decision and put them in that situation. Bad investments on booze, bad investments with drugs, the world that landed them right where they're at. And yet you'll see God's people who live in great homes, nice houses, drive nice cars, wear $800 suits, have all the food they need, and yet inside spiritually, just they're, they're just as destitute and homeless and broke as the people you're going to give a hot dog to today. And they too will live off the spiritual handouts that they have to get from other people. They'll never learn how to get it themselves or give it out to somebody else. And the longer they go without a good bath, spiritually speaking, washing of the water by the word, the longer they go without good, solid, hot food, manna from heaven, doctrine, meat, the worse they get and the more problems they have. It's all because of what the choices they made on the inside. Now, our job, the job of every Christian, the job of every church, and we've come through these things is to help you get to a place where you begin. I told you when we started, eight things in this passage. I've given you two of them now. Last week, we saw about the right desire, how you reproduce and you duplicate what you have with God in others. We saw that last week. This week, we talked about loving your life or, or, or losing your life to God so you can, you can f- find it and have everything that God wants for you. Then take what God has given you. Scatter it out, the Word of God. Give it to others. Give it to the world. Cast your bread upon the waters of your family. Cast your bread upon the people at work. Cast your bread upon the people uh, that God gives you in your church, uh, in your world, and then you make those investments. And it'll come back on you as as an increase. It'll come back in everything that you do. You will always be better off after you give everything to God you have than keeping it yourself. But it's a process to get there. It's a process to get there. We'll hold up there. I'll call you back here in just a few minutes and we'll get back. Don't forget you guys are going